It's an ordinary day in Worcester, Massachusetts. But wait, look. Down on the ground. It's a germ. It's a worm. It's 508. Bursting from the subterranean depths of Wormtown like the mighty Shy Halud. It's 508, a show about Worcester. Today is August the 10th, 2018, and we begin a brand new 508 adventure, an adventure packed with mystery and action and fun and Brendan Melican. Hi, Brendan. How's it going? Good. I'm really feeling kind of short today. Your your chair is maybe misadjusted. Brendan, tell me about the city of Worcester. The city of Worcester is, uh, is the state of the city is strong, Mike. The state of the city has never been stronger. You're listening to Unity Radio, broadcasting with 100,000 milliwatts of power on 102.9 FM and streaming at WorcesterMag.com. You can call in live at 508. 508- Four seven one five two six five, and thanks to the mighty Gabrielle Powers for engineering today's show. Yeah, I've been gone from Worcester for a couple of days, so I was hoping you could tell me a thing or two about. Well, it. you know what I, I can must t- have missed something. Here's what here's what I got. Here's what I got for you, Brenda Milliken. I feel like I got the uh, I got the new narrative framing for this season of the of Worcester. Okay. As we imagine, Worcester's a TV show. I figured out how we're going to frame it, or I figured out. I have a suggestion. Let me put it that way. Maybe we're going to do it. Maybe we're not. But this is a suggestion. When I talk about uh, Warside a little bit, because mm-hmm. Mass Live had a nice article where they did a public records request and looked at city hall emails related to the demolition of the Warside Skate Park in Worcester. Um, perhaps talk about panhandling, because Worcester's father, John Madden, wrote a nice op-ed about how you should respond to panhandling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a couple of articles, one about the... Uh, Yes, in my backyard movement, and another one about social st- science studies around what makes us happy. All right, where are you going to start? Well, Brendan, here's here's my what suggestion. What are we going to make up first, Mike? Here's my suggestion. This is this is not something I made up. This is something somebody else made up a long time ago. Here is my suggestion. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Mm. Which is to say, Brendan, I want to quote the beginning of A Tale of Two Cities when, when deciding what's the, what's the narrative around Worcester. That the theme, the thematic arc, the main theme for this season of Worcester is turmoil. Turmoil, <laughs> right? It's like stuff is being developed, stuff is being torn down. We're losing churches, we're losing skate parks, we're gaining other things. Sure. People are being forced out of the city. People are moving into the city. Maybe we're going to get this minor league baseball team. Maybe that's going to mean that like half of the city will be demolished, and you know, mm. everyone will be will be exiled to. Uh, Holden, I think. Unfortunately, um, this is the this is the idea though. Is instead of saying Renaissance to, to talk about turmoil or to talk about um, change. Question for you. You don't have to answer yes. it right away. Yes. Um, I think if we were to frame the city of Worcester as a as a long running uh, television program, yes, you could probably think of like in any given season who the producer is, who the who the director is, the showrunner. Who's the showrunner? That's what I was going to ask you. You don't have to answer right now. Give it some thought though. Like who's the guy behind the scenes that nobody really knows who the name is from episode to episode, but 
the I mean, I'll tell really you exactly crafting. who the showrunner which okay. is, which is the metaphor doesn't go that far. Yeah. Yeah, the metaphor doesn't go far enough okay. to actually have a showrunner. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's that. Did you read this Mass Live article on uh, the demolition of Warside? No, I actually have seen zero news in the uh, last three days, so uh-huh. I, I eagerly await uh, your instruction, and then I will make things up from there. A couple weeks ago when we talked about Warside, I was a big apologist for this. Maybe not a big apologist for the city, but I felt like I really understood the city's perspective. And since then, in talking to people... Uh, about facts on the ground yeah. regarding Warside, I feel like I've become less sympathetic to the city's perspective on this, or at least the way they handled it. Here's an article called, Warside Will Not Live in Vain, Skateboarders Vow to Build Again After City Demolishes Their Skate Park. This mm-hmm. is by Melissa Hansen, who writes for MassLive.com, who uh, continue to just do a great job as far as covering Worcester. Um, she t- interviewed Chris Matthews, one of the Warside people. Matthews, along with Jamie Doobie and others, built that park up from nothing. Inspired by a ramp in Philadelphia, they saw potential in the space. Starting around 2007, they got to work. They saved up thousands of dollars and poured their own concrete. It took years, but they created something special. But now it's gone. Despite more than a decade of dedication, it was a call from a friend that alerted Matthews that Warside was meeting its demise. Matthew and the rest of the skateboard community received no heads up from the city that their cherished Warside would be demolished. In the weeks and days leading up to the demolition, there was a stabbing, a fire, and a growing encampment of homeless people in and around Warside. According to a series of emails regarding Warside that were obtained by Mass Live through a public records request, the order for an emergency demolition of the park came at the recommendation of the police and fire chiefs chiefs and the commissioner of inspectional services the day before warside was demolished city officials were doing last sweeps of the park according to emails augustus told his staff that there was tons of furniture on the sidewalk nicole valentine the chief of staff for augustus at 9:12 a.m asked dan cahill of the city's department of inspectional services via email to do one more sweep of the area A few days before the destruction, two bus shelters in the neighborhood were removed, a hole in the chain-link fence that was used as a cut-through was repaired, and Worcester police continued to monitor the area. Per the city manager and upon filing an order of the fire chief, this property will be emptied, bulldozed, and fenced off ASAP, Valentine wrote in an email on July 11th. This is, again, I believe two days before it was demolished. The contractor that performed the demolition has invoiced the city for $40,000, the spokesman said. Valentine also requested that the police and quality of life team continue 24-hour periodic checks of the property as no trespassing signs were hanging. This actually is written in a weird way that I'm not sure if there were no trespassing signs or there were no trespassing signs. Anyway, Mm. those in violation should be arrested as numerous warnings have been issued, and this is a matter of life safety in addition to public health and sanitary conditions, Valentine wrote. The skaters who use the park daily said they feel as if they were punished for the trash left behind, the noise levels, and violence committed by some of the homeless community who were using Warside. Skater... um, Skaters did not want to, quote, kick people when they were down, Matthews said, but when homeless people were doing drugs and defecating at Warside, they wanted those people gone. Matthews said he had a verbal agreement with some of the city workers who had come by the who had come by that the park would remain so long as they kept it clean, quiet, and respectful. They never allowed public intoxication or too much noise at the park, he said. 
As recently as June the 26th, Matthews emailed the city asking to speak to someone about Warside. Matthews said he never got an answer to that inquiry, as well as others sent over the years. That last part to me is especially interesting, but Brendan, I'm curious if you have a, a reaction to this. Yeah, no, and again, that's the first time I've heard any of that, and, and to me that it just shows a complete lack of uh, foresight and uh, yeah, just generally speaking, uh, terrible optics for the city, right? Like, I think we've talked about this, but not on the show. Like, how many years have we spent collectively listening to city councilors uh, waste oxygen at city council meeting about their constituents being scared of skateboarders on the sidewalks or on the plaza behind the, behind city hall like the common what used to be a reflecting pool but is now an oval or something mm-hmm. um like how how often do we we've had lawsuits that uh have gone the answer all the is about the, 300 years about 300 years worth and then we've had you know lawsuits that have made its their way all the way to the federal level about things like panhandling and that is at least an accessory to homelessness and whatnot yes. so the solution to those problems is now take a bulldozer to them and push everything back out on the street, right? Like, I'm not suggesting that uh, the city should just turn a blind eye to, uh, you know, skateboarding uh, if it's if it's going to result in people taking over, just co-opting property, right? Like, I get the DIY uh, ideal, uh, but there's going to be a balance, I guess, between the two. It is the city's property, right? But if the result of what you're accomplishing by bulldozing a property is to reinvent the problem that these cats solved for you. Like, these cats did more on their own over 10 years than the city council did over 300, according to you, in yes. terms of keeping skateboards off sidewalks, ter- well, terrorizing I, old ladies. No, your question was, how long have we been listening to city oh. councilors waste their breath? And oh, the that, answer that is basically as long as we've been a city. Okay. It's only been about okay. six, 60 years that we've been complaining about skateboarders okay. on sidewalks okay. then. And I think that's kind of that's the only takeaway should, that I have. You should talk more into the mic. That's the only takeaway I have from any of this is just that that you know the the city's solution to a problem, one small problem that was not really uh, visible to anybody, was to create even bigger problems uh, that they have been incapable of dealing with across the city for decades. I don't understand how that's a solution to anything. I want a Monday morning quarterback part of this. I want to invite you too, Brenda Mellican, to Monday morning quarterback this. Also, people who want to call in live at 508-471-5265, you know you want a Monday morning quarterback this. This part at the this part at the end where uh, Chris Matthews said that he uh, had you know e- emailed the city repeatedly uh, over the years, and even in June had emailed the city asking to talk to somebody at the city officially about this, and never got a response. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that's, again, that, that that's, going back to my original point, right, like, I can I can at least pretend to be sympathetic to uh, the city's argument that this is, you know, not property, that people can just come in and start pouring concrete, right, like that, but if you get the people who have been doing that, you've been ignoring them for 10 years, and they're the ones that are actually instigating some degree of outreach and communication, and you continue to ignore them, uh, and then go about demoing something that creates more problems than it solves, I just don't see how that can be viewed as a competent uh, administrative tactic by the city's administration. That just seems absurd on so many levels. I want to flip it around and say, Brendan Mellican, if you were running uh, an unlicensed skate park sure. in a vacant lot in Worcester, and you decided, you know what, I want to try to make contact with City Hall, how would you work City Hall in order to legitimize yourself, make some kind of peace treaty, whatnot? 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the difficult part. But from what I understand, and I'm going to I'm going to claim ignorance uh, prior to this event. Uh, in, in hindsight, I've, yes. been, I've learned that there are models for DIY parks across the country, right? Like, well, that's not my question. I know that there's models, of, I'm but sure I think that, that, that probably is is what should have happened earlier on, right? Is is a relationship, a formal relationship with the city, because the city kind of did encourage bad behavior. From what, what they're saying is now bad behavior, right? They encouraged it for ten years because it wasn't a secret, right? Like we, we've right. Had, uh, we have city, cover stories right. in Worcester Magazine, right? right like it's right. not a secret to anybody. So that, then it becomes like, yeah. how do you deal with it? And you deal with it in, in, in a productive way. And maybe that in, includes reinventing the wheel a bit and saying, hey, look, you guys can do your own thing. Like, I don't know, we'll send a, a supervisor from parks down every once in a while to make sure that there aren't rusty nails coming out of your home board co- concrete and what have you. There's a million ways. You, you could We could hypothesize how that relationship should have uh, been formed well, between the two parties. Here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to Monday morning quarterback on this. I want to say Chris Matthews should have talked to a city councilor mm-hmm. that like that like I we talk about how they're basically just LARPing ombudsmen that a lot of sure. what they're doing is LARPing, live action role playing, voting and doing this and that and handing out keys to the city. It's a lot of fun but it's not really impacting anything. Um, but they're also ombudsmen for you, and so mm-hmm. and they're also like in the community. So if you wanted to go talk to Dan Cahill of the Inspectional Services Department, you might not know where to find him. Right. If you talk to him on the street, he might be like, uh, "I can't really talk to you now. Like this is my job, and I have to be like go through channels around this stuff." But your city councilor is walking down the street. If your city councilor is Gary Rosen, your city councilor may be standing in the middle of the street, and. Your city councilor may not be sympathetic to your skate park. In mm-hmm. this case, I feel like the city councilor has indicated that she's not super, super sympathetic to it. But that's where I went on Monday morning quarterback it and say that if you're doing something like this in Worcester that's you know, whatever we'll call it, unlicensed, sure. you know, not like a big criminal thing, obviously, or the city would have dealt with it. Like, you, like that's where I would start. Like, if it was maybe some other things, you might start with the Department of Public Health or you might call some other department. But just mm-hmm. to reach out and talk to a person rather than casting emails into the void. Because it seems to me like if I get an email, if I'm the city councilor's chief of staff or I'm, I'm whatever, I'm some much lower peon in City Hall, and I get an email where somebody's like, hey, I want to resolve this illegal skate park, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like – I'm gonna ask my boss, like, do we want to deal with this? And he's gonna say no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm gonna ask myself, do I want to myself like go out on a limb and try right. to deal with this? Right. No. So it's got to be somebody who comes from outside of that 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 power structure, like a city councilor, who can come totally. in and be like, you know, Gary Rosen has said so many positive things about this skate park. Yeah. He would have been a great person to approach. And on the parks, uh, you know, the parks committee. So yeah, the ideal person. To there be you go. To. There you go. Yeah. No. And I guess the only thing to add to that is, um, again, but I think. You're right in saying that's that's the bureaucratic answer. Like, no, you're not going to respond to that email. You're not going to open that can of worms. But the unfortunate reality is by ignoring that conversation, you open an even bigger can of worms. You're not listening to the show. We're being played music to indicate that we take a break. This is 508 Worcester's Libertarian Voice. We'll be back with more. It, it seems like more problems have been created for the city as a whole by solving this one problem that wasn't actually a problem for anybody. Like, I mean, and, and maybe this is just a disconnect that exists in the city, right? Like, you and I could probably sit down for 10 minutes and name a dozen locations, six of which I'm not aware of, six of which you're not aware of, that are, like, long-standing homeless encampments in the city, within city limits, right? Like, they're yes. everywhere. That's not, and that's not a secret. Some of them have been standing for decades. And 
I mean, I'm going to guess either this, the, the city has no, the administration has no idea that they exist, or they just turn no. a blind eye to them. The city, I mean, I think the city administration 100% knows that they exist. I mean, again, it's just that, like, nobody can, you know, you have to do a lot of things that are not entirely legal mm -hmm. in this world. Sure. Right? Like, uh, you know, it's, it's this old theory that every Amer adult American commits three felonies a day. Yes, so you want to absolutely. Get all of the laws that we have. So mm -hmm. at some point, you just have to be felonies be damned. I'm going to get my job done. Yep. One of the details that really hit me was, um, like, initially, I feel like the detail that most persuaded me that the city was in the right was the fire chief saying there are 60 tires underneath the bridge, mm -hmm. and if a tire fire starts, it will, like, melt this bridge. Sure. Yeah. And I was like... Yeah, that's crazy. Like, yeah, you got to deal with this problem. But like, is the first thing that they did get the tires out of there? No. That's what I'm saying. Is the second thing they did get the tires out of there? No. Are the tires still there? For all I know, they're still there. Live from our studio in a basement down an alley in downtown Worcester. This is 508. Today on the show is me and Brendan Melican. Hi, Brendan. How's it going, Mike? Good. We were just. We were just. Bitching and moaning about how the worm side, war side thing was handled. Well, and and so I guess one of the things we didn't talk about earlier, and and so if the issue start with what you mentioned in the break, which I think is totally valid, right? You've got sixty tires that, according to uh, the fire department, could burst into flames at any moment, and and tire fires are not fun, right? Like the likelihood of them catching fire probably slim, but if they did, yeah, that could be it a would problem destroy, for it uh, would just possibly destroy this bridge. Yeah. So, but then move the tires. Right, like, I mean, is is this like where we're at for critical thinking skills? That like, well, the tires are all the way down there. The only way to get to them is to bulldoze everything between us and them. Like, I don't know. Like, you probably again, if you answered Chris's email, you probably could have just said, "Hey, would you guys mind rolling the tires out to the end of the street? We're going to send a dumpster down to pick them up." And you and I just managed to save the city forty thousand dollars for demo work. I want to throw this out there. I want to throw out our services. Me and Brendan Mellican as. Uh you know, political fixers is not the right word. Let's let's call ourselves um, common sense consultants, volunteer fixers, volunteer fixers. If you're running a uh, unlicensed enterprise in the city of Worcester that you feel like is a public good and that you want to get things straight with City Hall, and they're not responding to your emails. You can just email us at pieandcoffee.gmail.com or call this show at 508-471-5265, and we will tell you from our experience what we think is the best way to work channels in order to get yourself started on the right foot. I think that's a great idea. I mean, whether it's a, a, an un, unpermitted uh, DIY skate plaza or you're trying to pave over your front lawn and turn into a driveway, uh, we have got the channels uh, to help fix things for you. Conversely, if you're running a, a, a medium-sized municipality and you have no idea what you're doing and optics don't matter to you, Reach out as well, and we'll tell you how you're about oh. to fall flat on, flat on your, your face uh, with, with a, what seems to be a simple decision from inside your air-conditioned office, but is going to go poorly out on the mean streets of Worcester. I don't know. Honestly, if people from the city call me up and say, how do I handle something from a PR perspective, I'm going to be like, I don't care. I don't <laughs> care. I kind of – I mean, I don't want to see you fail, but I kind of don't have that much emotional investment in your <laughs> success. Brendan, did you see this op-ed that uh, Father John Madden wrote to the Telegram – from bums to ambassadors. Uh, no, I have got, but I have no excuse for this one because well, it's August fourth, and I was in town then. There you go. It. Well, this is from their periodic column on or column on religion. Keep the faith. This is by John Madden, who is the pastor of St. John's Church, and this is an article about what you should do with panhandlers. 
And it's very interesting to me for a particular reason. Brendan, I think whenever we make up our mind about issues, sometimes we do it based on our own experience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we base, base it on information that we have gathered around the issue. Sometimes we base it on somebody whose judgment we trust mm -hmm. telling us how we should think about the issue. Sometimes we base it on a sort of more abstract political or philosophical reasoning around the issue. Sometimes it just comes out of our gut. Is, is this an ad for Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point? No, this okay. is an ad for Father John Madden because in every one of these dimensions, he is he is much better than I am. There's no there's no grounds on which I could say, you know what, I trust my judgment on this dimension of the issue more than Father Madden's because he has been working with the homeless of Worcester and the down and out in Worcester and the economically marginal in Worcester for years sure. at very close quarters. He knows more of them than I do. He spends more time talking to them than I do. Even though I've spent 20 years doing this kind of stuff in Worcester, also he's 15 years older than me. Mm -hmm. Also, he's a priest. Mm. So I feel like at least from my own philosophical perspective that I want to work from, He's better educated and more thoughtful than I am. Here's what he says. And this this is something where he agrees honestly with the Pope and Mother Teresa, who are two other people who I would generally put in the category of people who I'm very interested in, in their thoughts on how to deal with the homeless. He says, there's a compartment in my car just below and to the left of the steering wheel. It is used as a storage space for any $1 bills I have, plus the occasional $5 bill. Initially, this convenience was used exclusively for quick detours through McDonald's drive-thru to grab a coffee. This changed just before the start of Lent in 2017. I had read an interview that Pope Francis gave to a monthly Milan-based street magazine. In the interview, the Holy Father said, when asked if it is right to give alms to people who help ask for help on the street, quote, help is always right. In a quite favorable review of the interview, the editorial board of the New York Times suggested that we all have a policy when it comes to panhandlers. I did. It was the reasonable policy not to give anything. I did not give because I believed it would not really help the person. Either it would be used in a destructive way or it would be a disincentive to the person in finding a more stable and sufficient source of income. Besides, we serve a meal at St. John's every weekday and have a generous food pantry available every Saturday. I'll say parenthetically... They serve 450 people some days, and this is um, there's many people who have made this happen over the years. But John Madden is one of the uh, keystone people in this project. I was comfortable with this policy until the Pope got me thinking. My policy may have been reasonable, but I came to see it was paternalistic and self-righteous. I knew what was needed better than any of the people holding signs at the intersections. Further, I was part of a group that was already offering them help if they really wanted it. In response to this reflection, Pope Francis's point that help is always right presented me with a powerful challenge. Indeed, he converted me. The New Testament word for conversion is metanoia. In classical Greek, it meant changing one's mind about someone or something. The Pope changed my mind. Soon afterwards, I found myself coming to a red light near Lincoln Plaza. McDonald's was on my right. At the light was a man holding a sign. I reached into the compartment and offered him a $1 bill. The exchange which ensued was inspiring. First, his gratitude far exceeded the measly offering he received. Second, we engaged in discussion, a short, insignificant, but human interaction. In fact, he did know me from eating at St. John's. Now I knew him a little better. What a different experience than my past, waiting at the red light, trying not to make eye contact, nervously hoping the light would change quickly. I understood why Pope Francis used the word he did. It was right. Peter Marin, the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, said, Modern society calls the beggar bum and panhandler and gives them the bum's rush. 
but the Greeks used to say that people in need are, in fact, the ambassadors of the gods. In giving up one cup of coffee, I encountered an ambassador of God. Obviously, it is not about the money. The one dollar is neither going to help or hurt him much at all. Even those who are much more thoughtful and creative than I, and make sure they always have a sandwich or a gift card on hand, are not offering much in a material sense. Rather, it is about the gesture. Pope Francis continued, Certainly it is not a good thing just to throw a few coins at the poor. The gesture is important, helping those who ask, looking them in the eyes, and touching their hands. Tossing money without looking in the eyes, that is not the gesture of a Christian. Teaching in charity is not about offloading one's own sense of guilt, but it is touching, looking at our inner poverty that the Lord understands and saves, because we all have inner poverty. We know that this inner poverty we share can cause division among us, and today we're experiencing an epidemic of divisiveness. It seems that everybody is fighting about everything, since we are all in some way diseased and disabled. Maybe there is no way out of the mess, or maybe the Pope is right. All that is needed is looking at each other in the eyes, touching our hands, and reminding each other that the Lord understands and saves. Your reaction, Brad Melican. <laughs> counterpoint. <laughs> I have no counterpoint at you know, I like I, you. Uh, will we'll defer to Father Madden. You know, I, uh, you know, I think this is interesting because I too volunteer at a place that serves a lot of homeless people, and I think I've always felt had mixed feelings about giving to people on the street. Even though I have been, I think, one of Worcester's most um, uh, loud and obnoxious people in favor of us keeping panhandling legal. Sure. I'm not super always excited to give people money because I do feel like, you know what, I know this guy and he's going to use this money for something that's... But see, that's kind of the thing. And I, I, I always feel like it's kind of... Whenever we have a conversation about panhandling, like we did as it went through a, a long uh, legal process here in the city, or if we're just having general conversations or you're just getting, you know, basically bad advice from people who, who treat like panhandlers like feral animals, like don't feed the bears sort of thing, it misses the point entirely, right? Like, I've got no problem helping out anybody when I can. Like, I have a problem helping out jerks. Like, for me, it has nothing to do yeah. whether or not somebody's standing on the side of the road uh, with a sign. Whatever. That's that, that's not the issue. The issue is whether or not that person is a jerk or not, or in, in just in their interaction with me. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to admit that, or not happy or whatever, more than willing to admit that I've given plenty of, of, of loose change, uh, cigarettes, uh, and other assorted uh, things that would be in my pockets at any moment in time to people who ask for them if they seem like they need them as much, if not more, than I do. But then the, the, there are people that will come up right after that are just a jerk. And no, you're not getting any of my stuff. That's because. But if you were my friend and you were drunk and belligerent at the bar about trying to bum a cigarette off of me, you wouldn't get that for me either. That's... Well, I tell yeah. you, whenever, whenever people ask me for stuff, I don't avoid eye contact. Yeah. I definitely make eye contact and say no. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> I'm not I mean, sure that that's, that's – I don't know if that counts <laughs> counts or not. I do make eye contact. I do feel like I respond to somebody as a human being. Always. Well, yeah, and that's part of my problem as well, too. I make eye contact with everybody just naturally uh, walking down the street, and I feel like I in, end up inviting uh, many more interactions than some people tend not to have, but – I always, I, I've just always felt that, like, whenever we have conversations about panhandling, uh, how you deal with it from a, a pr- productive uh, perspective, it's kind of the wrong conversation. It's we should be having conversations about jerks. I do like, I mean, I do like the idea of giving people a buck, just as a matter of course. I, I, I remember the one time that I visited Ethiopia for a few weeks. You know, it was one of those places where, like, you have this very foreign money, mm-hmm. and I think Ethiopian, an Ethiopian dollar was worth like. A few cents. I don't even remember how mm-hmm. it worked exactly, but like I just remember like the first person who panhandled me. I think this is and this is probably somebody who lived on two dollars a day. I gave her like a hundred dollars accidentally, 
And my my guide there was sort of like, I'm not sure this is a good idea to do this regularly. And I was like, what do you do? These people are desperately poor. I have a lot of money. I can give I can't give a hundred dollars to everybody on the street, but I can give a hundred dollars yeah. to a few people and probably change some lives. And this person was like, "What we do with the people who live here is somebody asks you for something, and you can give them like again. There's like very small coins that are a fraction of a, a fraction of a cent, mm-hmm. and it's like." These add up, and this is what people live on. And I just remember being so touched, you know, walking down the street at night and seeing like security guards getting off from work—not people, security guards in Ethiopia who have a lot of money—but seeing them, you know, they, somebody would be sleeping on a rug, you know, t- over on the sidewalk, maybe a lady and a kid, or maybe just a lady or whatever, and they would just sort of go over there and kind of like tuck a penny mm-hmm. under the rug or tuck like a few cents under the rug. I thought that was so touching, and I feel so. I feel like a dollar is co- maybe kind of equivalent in our context to just be like, "Sure, here's a buck." Yeah, I got no issue with that. I don't know. I'm kind of. I don't know if I've been metanoid, but I'm on the edge. Do we need to go to a break? We need to go to a break. If you're yeah. a jerk, don't ask me for money, Mike. This is 508 Worcester's week by week good faith survey of evidence. We'll be back with more. Mother Teresa felt the same way. Mother, people would ask Mother Teresa, "What do I do to these bums who want it?" my money for drugs and she was just like Jesus never says anything about you know I don't know using good judgment yeah, no, I, when I asked but I mean that's the, so I guess that's kind of my whole routine right is like if somebody comes up to me and whether it's based on my own judgment or even if they say so much that I just if somebody came up to me and said I need, to, I need a buck because I'm trying to put together funds for a bag of smack right like that's a level of honesty I can appreciate. I'm probably going to help that person out, right? But somebody comes up to me and says, I'm trying to get a bus to Auburn or whatever. And they're like, you're, right, they're, you're just like, you're lying. You're definitely not getting it. Especially when they're walking in the, the opposite direction of the bus station. Right. It's like, no, I'm not helping you. I'm like, not going to reward you for conning me. It's no different than like when some guy, somebody comes to the door, uh, you know, asking for money for a completely made up police benevolent association or something, right? Like, yeah. that's just a scam. And I don't. Yeah. I have no interest in helping out con artists and scam artists. I, people need help. Of course you help them. I think that's one of these economic things to worry about, actually, is less giving people a disincentive to change their lives and work and more in just giving there to be a generally a more incentive to standing on the street, hassling people. Well, I, I, I know you I, – I feel like we've had some of these conversations in the past, and you have some stronger beliefs about the meaningfulness – more puritanical, I'll say, uh, beliefs about the meaningfulness of work than I do. Uh, but this is why I'm such a strong proponent of universal basic income. It just makes perfect sense to me because we, we can all agree that there's like a basic amount of, whether it be money, supplies, food, whatever, that human beings need. Uh, who am I to judge what they're going to do with that, right? But if someone's going to play a con, I'm like, no, I don't. And it doesn't need to be measured out and valued by work or whatnot. We just know that humans need X to be alive. That's yeah. Are we coming back? Yep. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye and dark within. This is the water, and this is the well. Drink full and descend. The horse is the white of the eye and dark within. And this is Brendan Mellican. And I'm Michael Benedetti. I'm the white of the eye and dark within. And this is the 508 podcast and television show. Have you ever read any of these studies where they say, what is it that makes people happy? You know, this or that, or people are happy in this circumstance and not that circumstance. And you hear you hear these results and you say, wow, that's not what I would have thought. That's really counterintuitive. People are much more complicated and weird than I thought. 
You ever have this happen? Like, like where they talk about like, well, you know, making more money, you know, it really doesn't make people any happier after a certain point. Those kind of studies. Yeah. And you're well, like, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, you would think that like the $2 million would make somebody more happy than the $1 million, but it's like kind of maybe the, not really. Not as when I was younger. Yes. As an adult. No. Well, but, here's the So this article is called this. This is a paper called the sad truth about happiness scales, empirical results. And the sad truth about happiness scales in this case, Brendan, is that all those studies are wrong. So <laughs> and then, in fact, n- none of our none of our uh, surprises about human nature are real. Turns out cocaine um, is the only thing that's making anybody happy, and we can and all move on now. There you go. So this is a, this is a working paper by Timothy N. Bond and Kevin Lang for the National Bureau of Economic Research. These working papers are circulated for discussion and comment purposes. They haven't been peer-reviewed, and nobody official has vetted them. Uh, so they, they say, we replicate nine key results from the happiness literature, and I could enumerate these later if you like. We show that none of the findings can be obtained relying only on non-parametric identification. The findings in the literature are highly dependent on one's beliefs about the underlying distribution of happiness in society or the social welfare function one chooses to adopt. Furthermore, any conclusions reached from these parametric approaches rely on the assumption that all individuals report their happiness in the same way. When the data permit, we test for equal reporting functions conditional on the existence of a common cardinalization from the normal family. We reject this assumption in all cases in which we test it. So, Brendan, I'm not super great with with statistical math, but my my, uh, summary of this is that basically they look at these studies and they say, okay, each of these studies makes some fairly substantial assumptions just about the right way to do the statistics Mm -hmm. in the study. And that if you change those assumptions, a lot of times you just completely invalidate the study. Um, and this and this has to do with these very these nine very prominent things here. And so then so and people who I trust in the economics world uh, found this fairly persuasive and also somewhat shocking to realize like uh, like how much of this has to do with like oh if I massage the data this way I see this if I massage the way data this way I see this you would hope to see something which was more like okay under various different reasonable mm-hmm. assumptions around the statistics of the situation, we still see, we sure. you know, maybe we see 10% more if we make one set of assumptions and 10% less if we make another set, but all of them show that there's this is a real effect. They're saying not really. They're saying not really. So this is an interesting paper to me. Are you any happier after uh, after reading it? A little, a little bit, a little bit. Partially because I just got to be reminded of these different things, such as the Easterlin paradox, the, oper- the observation that in some settings, higher incomes are not associated with higher levels of happiness. Sure. Easterlin in the early 70s found that income and subjective well-being assessments were strongly and positively correlated within a country in a given year, but not over time and across countries. This and subsequent studies led Easterlin to conclude, will raising the incomes of all increase the happiness of all? The question to this answer can now be given with somewhat greater assurance than 20 years ago. It is no. Easterlin instead concludes that the individuals judge their happiness relative to their peers and not on an absolute scale. And these guys look at that paper and related papers and say, not really. Mm-hmm. Not really, Easterlin. You know, it was a nice thought, but not really. Is there a... Uh a secret to happiness buried in this paper somewhere? No, no. Th- I mean, th- this is the thing, right? I mean, this is like saying, I mean, here's one, this is one that I think re- kind of actually sucks. Have you, do you, are, you, are you aware of the happiness over the life cycle result? Nope. There is substantial, there's substantial literature, Brendan, that finds happiness is U-shaped over the life, life cycle. Individuals begin their adulthood fairly happy. 
see a decrease during much of their working life, and then rebound in happiness as they reach retirement. Blanche Flower and Oswald in 2008 obtained this result across 70 countries, and there is even some evidence that it holds in apes. But that makes perfect sense, right? That shouldn't be surprising. But these, I think it's surprising to you because in the last segment I pointed out that you have some uh, what I consider some bizarro old school puritanical beliefs on work and its meaningfulness and whatnot. But work is a nightmare. It's miserable. That's that's not that's not no way to enjoy life. That's well, Brendan. The sad truth about happiness is that Bond and Lang find that the studies that show this U-shaped happiness function are just like not really, not really, not really, not really. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of cool. Like, I felt like that was really going to be, uh, you know. You know, I could be like, well, however, you know, whatever my level of happiness in my mid-40s, my level of happiness in my mid-50s is going to be higher. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of just coast, honestly. I got this U-shaped happiness function. (laughs) I'm definitely below the bottom shape of the U chronologically, but no, it's not going to happen, Brendan. You're just going to stay miserable? I'm going to have to try. I'm going to have to try. All right. So there's that study. So you get nothing for me in terms of secrets to happiness, then, is what you're saying. Uh no, I mean this this actually connects in with something that we talk about all the time, which is the alienation in our society mm-hmm. and the unhappiness in our society that even in the midst of plenty and of miracles, we have such struggles. Mm-hmm. Suicide, you know, people commit suicide, people do all sorts of damaging things to themselves and to others. Uh, people feel so isolated. Sure. And what is the silver bullet that will help us solve this? And uh, even just wait a while and you'll get happier. Doesn't work. No. Not according to these fellas. That that part actually makes sense. But I mean, yeah, uh, there's probably something to be said though too. A bit of a departure from this that stuff we've probably talked about in the past as well. That uh, that's also. I guess one of the problems that you'd see here, right, is like they're looking at giant groups, right, and and you, you can't come up with the, the the magic bullet to make a group happy, right? That's a very individual process, and in, in, in the converse too, right? Like, I mean, you're not going to figure out like a, a magic way to make all people miserable uh, throughout life and whatnot, right? Like, that's an individual thing, and we don't do a good job of treating people like individuals anymore. We I do. Mean, we kind of jokingly do the whole libertarian voice of Worcester sort of thing, but uh, yeah, I mean, if there's something to be said for classical liberalism where like libertarian ideas come from, that's probably it, that putting some degree of weight on the individual uh, is going to produce better outcomes over time than treating treating everybody like a herd. That's true. That's true. You know, I feel like maybe one of the takeaways from this is just that we should look like we should give more weight to pre-20th century measures of happiness, whether we're talking about Aristotle or John Stuart mm-hmm. Mill or whatever, with this idea that maybe all the stuff that we think we've learned about happiness scientifically is just a bunch of baloney. Yeah. Is just or not a bunch. I mean, I don't want to say that this is baloney. Like this is like legit people. One of these is by I think Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the who's Nobel Prize winning mm-hmm. economist, one of the great behavioral economists of the 20th century. He's done some amazing work. Um, I just feel dis- I just feel. I mean, it's interesting to read this, but I also just feel deeply disappointed to realize. Like, uh, you ever see that book? Uh, that Gretchen Rubin bestseller, The Happiness Project. No. She she sort of looked at these different things that were supposed to make you happy and did like one a month and wrote a book about it. It was one of these kind of books, and it was very successful for her. And like reading this study, I realized this book was just predicated on uh, 
a bunch of stuff which is probably not even true, or yeah. that was going to make her happy, but no one, no group of people happy, right? That's well, or, or I mean, it, uh, honestly, it might as well be the astrology project, and she's like, well, <laughs> yeah. every month I'm going to go by what a different star sign says, and then you know, uh, ten years after she publishes the book, somebody's like, you know what, astrology doesn't really have any scientific basis, yeah. and she's like, oh, really? Well, I guess that book was kind of silly then. I feel like we're towing, we're, we're just towing the line of a uh, of a free will argument uh, that is going to lead us way over the allotted time uh, that the radio station free will is that, yeah free will is I mean this is what when we, when we talk about addiction I always feel like we're fundamentally talking about free will the nice thing about free will is if there's no free will then we don't you know we should just do whatever we're doing yeah I mean actually you're going to anyways exactly exactly uh, here's a thing called agglomerate do we need to go to a break Okay. Here's a here's a article called "Agglomeration Effects Might Change the Yimby Calculus" by Devin Zugel Zoigel. Uh, I don't know this guy, how you say this guy's last name. Um, Yimby meaning yes in my backyard. In what a contra- nice change of pace that would be. In contrast to not in my backyard, and so. I think that we have frequently been a Yimby voice. We frequently said, you know what, we need to let people have more freedom over how they use their land and sure. more creativity to try to solve problems. And, you know, we need to worry a little bit less, or maybe not worry about a little bit less about this stuff, but we need to just, you know, turn down a little bit how much we, how much seriousness we give to people's fears. Right. Policy wise, policy wise, not like in individual interactions, but just policy wise. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, Devin says, there's a distinction within the Yimby cause that's mostly unspoken, but it's important. Two of the key goals of the movement aim, the, two of the key goals the movement aims to address are one, to lower housing prices, and two, to unlock economic, cultural, and social potential. These are often described in similar ways and are in many cases complementary. But they are not the same. The standard YMB view is roughly summed up as the law of supply and demand applies to housing too. The logic goes, one, zoning and other restrictions on density artificially restrict supply, creating a shortage. Two, there is greater demand than there is supply, so costs go higher than they otherwise would, sad for those who prioritize affordability, and fewer people than would like can live in that region. Sad for those who prioritize opportunity. Three, if we were to lift these restrictions and allow the market to respond to these price signals in a competitive way, the supply would increase to meet the demand and the price would go down. So everybody wins. And I should clarify a little bit maybe on the opportunity angle here. You know, part again, part of the goal is to say we need more housing. Let's make housing could mm-hmm. be cheaper. Housing could be more affordable. Terrific. And part of it is saying that like, if housing is expensive in an area, certainly part of it is because there's more economic opportunity in the area. People right. are willing to, willing to pay crazy prices to live in Boston because there's more economic opportunity in Boston. So um, by restricting the amount of housing in Boston, we cut people off from the possibility of like doing all this cool stuff that's going to yeah. make them a lot of money or make a big contribution. So it would be nice for people to be able to live in these areas. If people want to live out in the hills... That's cool. But if people want to go to an area where they could, like, do some serious stuff, work hard, have a career, that's cool, too. Which is also complicated by the idea that we treat housing as an investment, at least from an ownership perspective, too, right? Like, the idea of of an investment that's going to uh, lose you money over a lifetime, not really great uh, concept for an an investment. I don't even know how how to address that, that issue. 
But I mean, that that's you know, if if that's what he's talking about, though, is that the idea that like we we need to we we need to have the the goal of lowering housing prices. Uh, that isn't necessarily good for anyone who currently owns a home. If you're talking about rental, like like a rental market, that makes perfect sense. You're listening to 508, where I will read the second half of this article to you on the radio after this break. I oftentimes, that's the one thing that I, you know, and I guess it's part of the problem of being a homeowner, right? Like, I get a little squicked out sometimes when I hear people talking about, um, I guess, what do we call it now? Proto-gentrification? I don't, I don't think we're in full gentrification, right? But like... If we're if, if we're going down the uh, the rent is too damn high party uh, line, then like part of the problem with that is you're uh, kind of ignoring one of the goals of people who bought houses at any moment before right now. Right? Like nobody's bought a house to, to lose money, right? Like and if that impacts the rental market, uh, that's a natural byproduct of, of any housing market. And short of uh, rent control, like how do you how do you deal with that? Out, out are the lights out all, and over each quivering form, the curtain of funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy man, and the city, the city of worms. Live from the hidden depths of Wormtown, this is Five Way to Show About Worcester, in which Brendan was telling me something about housing I still don't understand. Well, no, I mean, just the idea that if you bought a house, right, would you want that if, if you were to buy, it's not like buying a car, right? I don't think anyone buys a house with the expectation that that property is going to stay level in terms of value, right? right? right. So that, that seems to be a fundamental flaw with what you're uh, reading here. Oh. Is well, that like if, 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 it, if he's basically stating the goal of, of a, housing, a healthy, healthy housing market is to keep prices low. lower. This is, I mean, but this that's is, a right. paradox within American housing, right? Is like we treat it like an investment; we don't treat it as a commodity. This is one of right, and this is one or of the theories of why, yeah. even though this, I mean, the idea of saying like, "Hey, maybe like somebody who's not rich should be able to have a house." Totally hey, down with that. Yeah. Hey, maybe somebody who wants to go to a city and get a job should be able to like do that without rent killing them. Yeah. Okay, these are common sense; these are reasonable. Nobody would be against these. But whenever you say. Yeah, and hey, your house could be worth less. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's like, forget this. So this is why, I mean, this is one of these issues where maybe a few people feel intensely that this is all a good idea, and everybody else feels vaguely like this is a bad idea, which mm-hmm. is why this it's hard to get the political will together to solve this problem. This is what you would call a wicked problem, Brendan, a problem which where you can state it quite easily, but the solution seems... Oh, totally. Yeah, Distinct. no, and, and and I'm not suggesting at all that I I, I think anything that you were stating uh, prior to the break is a bad idea. It just that seems to be the one giant hang-up that I think you would run into is, is yes. as soon as you say like we need to find creative ways to keep everything affordable, that becomes prob- a problematic for everyone who bought into the system uh, prior to again this moment in time. Well, actually, Brendan, even though he's talking about how um, potentially you're gonna this Yimby thing is gonna make housing prices go down, he now talks about how maybe it makes housing prices go up, which for somebody who's favoring the Yimby thing, <laughs> don't, they're not gonna like this, but you as a homeowner are gonna think this is great, and then you're gonna support at least half of this agenda. The supply-demand model ignores something important. The value of living in a particular place is greatly determined by how many people live around it. As the number of people living in a place increases, so does the value of being there. Sure. This is often labeled the agglomeration effect. Rent for a home in San Francisco is four times more than the equivalent home in Kern County just a few hours away. The differentiator is that 
that's where more people are. Kern has 100 people per square mile, while San Francisco has 18,860. If we somehow held all other things equal and emptied out San Francisco to match the density of Kern County, the value of living here would drop dramatically. San Francisco's population density means job opportunities, deep talent pools, professional and business networks, economies of scale, diversity and convenience, and so much more. A large population supports a qualitatively different kind of economy than a smaller one. A city nearly 200 times the size of a town is not just that town multiplied by 200. It's something different altogether. The supply-demand model does not take this agglomeration effect into account. The point of this is that, depending on the magnitude of this effect, increasing the supply could actually increase the cost of housing. He says, these two priorities may not actually contradict each other as much as I've implied for two reasons. One, the coefficients of each piece are really different. Maybe agglomeration effects from increased population do increase the value of being in a place, but the conventional supply-demand curve logic overwhelms this effect by having a larger decreasing effect on prices. This seems very likely to me. Or two, the entire bottom part of the market is cut off right now. Even if number one isn't true, we can still work to expand the stretch of the market through regulatory reform, technological innovation, cultural change, etc. In other words, we can try to figure out how to fit more people into the space we do have. A lot of laws exist to effectively cut out the bottom part of the market. Mm -hmm. The mechanism here is similar to the argument for how the minimum wage is in fact bad for the very low-wage workers it aims to protect. Laws like minimum lot sizes, setbacks, amenity provision, max number of occupants, etc. effectively make it illegal to build affordable housing. Many of these laws were introduced to protect people from unsafe tenement living conditions, and probably rightfully so, but some of them are definitely not for the sake of safety or consumer protection. For example, setbacks, certain aesthetic requirements, and height restrictions. If we could peel back the laws that make it prohibitively expensive to offer cheap housing, we could lower the marginal cost of building, which should in turn lower the market rate. Tokyo is a useful example here. It's experienced the same return to the city wave as other developed nations, yet land prices have remained steady. There's a reason Japan is famous for its capsule hotels and small apartments. Japanese land use policy allows and encourages it. Of course, most people would prefer to live in a big apartment than in a tiny closet-sized one, but in Japan, they at least have that option. By allowing landowners to serve the bottom end of the market, it lessens pressure on the rest of the market. By contrast, in the U.S., there's a floor to the amount of space you can offer someone. Again, this regulatory impulse comes from a good place. It can be legitimately dangerous and unsanitary to cram people in tiny space, but we could go much farther than we currently do while still maintaining a baseline level of safety and comfort for everyone. I myself am not settled on the question of whether the agglomeration effect overwhelms the supply-demand effect at the margins YIMBY activists are working at right now. I think it's much more likely than not that the affordability and opportunity objectives are aligned. But, Brendan, as you point out, the politics probably probably say people want housing prices to go up. So the question is, how do you how do you put this together in a way so that you can say to people – 
like you should want there to be more people living in Worcester. Yeah, so it, because your house gets more expensive. And this is again, I, I you know I was stating that kind of bluntly that like oh you should treat it like an investment, right? But I think that part of the problem is like many investments that people deal in uh, in in the United States in particular now, uh, markets uh, tend to be uh, based on volatility, right? More than uh, long term investing, okay. right? So like your your people who are day trading, right, and, and making a killing uh, over hours as opposed to or, or you know uh, building complex algorithms to do their trading for them to be able to catch waves of very, very small increments, but using large amounts of dollars, that, that's, that's happening instantaneously. We, ex- we expect very, very quick returns. I, as a homeowner, I wouldn't, be, wouldn't mind a bit, because I don't plan on going anywhere, if it took a decade, two decades, three, an entire lifetime to see a, a reasonable increase uh, in an investment. To me, that seems a little bit more normal. But, you know, look at Worcester now, like home prices, at least in my neighborhood, I mean, it, it, just in the last year, it's been absurd in terms of the increase in value. So you get a lot of people selling, a lot of new people moving in. That kind of volatility, I think, is what people look for more because it lends itself to a quick return. So mm. my point was just going to be that I think having you finished that up, the idea of a more holistic approach to uh, housing as part of a healthy ecosystem is, one, the takeaway, but two, the goal that people should be striving for, right? Like, they, it shouldn't just be about building flashy new things to attract the highest common denominator uh, into a community and then say, okay, what do we do now? It's uh, sort of like either planning communities so they make sense long term or going the Tokyo-Houston route uh, and removing all the barriers to entry so people can kind of do whatever they want. And in both of those examples, even though we might look at Houston or Tokyo and say, okay, living in a pod or having a McMansion right next to, you know, whatever. Do people, uh, do people in Houston live in pods? No, the Tokyo, they're pods. Okay. But in Houston, you've got like, there's no no real zoning. So you've also right. got crazy, crazy buildings next to each other and whatnot, but it works out. Like it actually seems to make more sense from a livability perspective. In the case of Houston, if you don't mind, eight-way clover leaves uh, over your house from the, the adjacent highway. But yeah, still, it works itself out. You know, I think that the um, I think that any arguments based on supply and demand, vis-a-vis housing, are tricky because the market moves so slowly. It takes mm-hmm. a while to build a house. It's a big. It's a lot of money. People hang on to them for a long time, irrespective of how much right. they're worth. Uh, they last a long time. They can take a. They can be hard to knock down. Like so, I- even if you change the laws, the supply of housing is going to change only very sure. slowly. So I think if it was something where things turned faster, either us making this argument would seem wrong because people would say that's not how it works, or us saying this argument would seem right and people would say, oh yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. But as it is, it's like. Who knows, like, wh- what policies change housing prices in Worcester? Do we have 50? I mean, we could make some changes, and we'll see 50 years from now. And none of those metrics exist in a vacuum, right? So, like, we, we use uh, new construction of homes as, as a pretty important metric of the health of the economy overall. Housing starts. But do we really do, – rarely do we seem to try and get into the weeds and say, where are they being built and why, right? So, like, Colorado for a while was had a huge boom in construction for housing. Uh, a lot of that followed in the wake of the recreational marijuana market opening up, right? There was a major change in their economy. People flooded there. Housing exploded. Austin, Texas is another one that, you know, in in recent memory had a huge boom, probably still continues for both economic opportunities and because it seems like a pretty cool city to live in. Um, Worcester, Maine have not seen such a boom uh, in, in new housing, but in comparison, Holden might, and and that's a, a might be a quality of life argument sort of thing. But but the the important part is, and we we used to talk about this all the time, that at any moment in time, regardless of housing starts, 
there are more vacant homes in the country than we have homeless people, right? Yes. Like, so it's, it's yes. some absurd math that we're dealing with, too, that, like, one, either the homes are being built in places that they don't actually need to be built, uh, or we're not doing a good job of looking, taking a step back and looking at why homes or housing are being built in certain areas. You know, Brendan, Brent crude oil is $72 a barrel, <laughs> down 1% on the week. Bitcoin is $6,500, down 12% on the week. You've been listening to The 508 Show, engineered by the mighty Gabrielle Powers, starring Brendan Mellican, with an assist from me, Michael Benedetti. We'll Yet talk to, be to named everybody showrunner. next week. Bye-bye.